I'm looking at these charts, and you know what freaks me out is they continue to look quite strong looking at these metals like copper and iron ore is still moving higher. I mean, it doesn't look as strong, but I mean, you look at something like coal, you know, lithium is weird. It just went up like three weeks ago and it's just plateauing. It's on the moon and it's staying on the moon. Uranium is very strong. And you know what freaks me out? This is all done on a strong dollar. You know, usually commodities go up on a weak dollar. So this leaves me wondering, and again, I have to get another financial expert on here. What happens when we get a weak dollar? Does that mean everything goes up even more? What happens to inflation? We're getting all this inflation on a strong dollar. Let me just get the DXY chart. I'm enjoying my little charts here. Gold is interesting, but not sure yet. Silver is interesting. Let's just see the DXY. Nickel, strong. Wheat, very strong. DXY, this is the freakiest thing of all. It's the strongest chart of them all. It is the strongest chart of them all. Now, isn't that interesting? So it just makes you wonder, what if the dollar was weak? So the dollar's doing fabulous. It's at 100 there on the DXY today. Big move. So that's interesting. Now, we look at the bonds and remember what we were saying two episodes ago? We had Gareth Soloway on and I kind of grilled him on the U.S. 10-year bond. And I said, your line in the sand is 2.5%. And he's like, yes, my line in the sand is 2.5%. So we're at 2.82. Like we've blown through the line in the sand. Now, and the line in the sand was for this 40-year bull market in bonds. And so the bull market being that the bonds are getting more expensive. So the yields are getting lower and lower. The reason it's a bull market is because there's more demand and more demand for bonds means you don't need to give as much yield. If everybody wants a bond, you can say, well, instead of giving 5%, I'll give you 0.5% or whatever. And so that went on for 40 years. And what we were discussing two episodes ago is, well, what if that 2.5% breaks? Now, this is a 40-year trend. So I also don't think we should go crazy and say, oh my God, it's the end of... You have to give it a few weeks, in my opinion. If it's 40 years, I think if it blips up for even two or three months. But after that, then you kind of, it's starting to look unambiguous at that point that the bull market in bonds is over. I mean, it probably is. I mean, what's so kind of, and and Gareth didn't think we would break two and a half percent and because he probably didn't think the bull market would end the following, you know, two or three days, a 40-year bull market. But so anyways, so not to get too into bonds, but that's a pretty big deal. That also might be freaking everyone out. I mean, to me, the most positive side of the market now is that everybody is bearish. Everybody is bearish. So it's starting to be like, huh, maybe we're going to get a rally of some kind here. Maybe the trade is getting pretty one-sided here. 
So anyway, so that's the kind of big picture on the markets. I was reading stories on Germany. I finally Googled Germany and nuclear power, and they don't want it. They don't want it. I, and at first I was kind of shocked. I was like, are these guys crazy? I think part of it might have to do that a lot of the uranium might come from Russia. I think that might be part of the deal. So that's like, to them, it's like, we just have to get on renewables as quickly as possible. But I don't know. Like in Belgium, I think they extended the nuclear reactors. And in January, they just uh, cut them by half in Germany. So it's not like it was like the end of January. And there was just a news story that came out that one of the people from one of the energy agencies in Germany was basically saying, no, we're not going there. We are not reopening nuclear power. Sort of a green center socialist party, which doesn't have exactly the same connotations as in North America. That's kind of the landscape here in Germany. So there may be just an inherent anti-nuclear bias. I don't know. Because you would think that Germany would be all over getting their nuclear going, but uh, that is not happening. Rowan Reddy comes to mind. I think we'll try and get him sometime soon. This episode, I thought we'd try something a little different, and we're going to Ana Gabriela Juarez, and she's the founder of Women in Mining Central America, and she's also the president of CTA Environmental Consultants. And I was just curious to hear, you know, where are we? How are we doing in the mining industry with women in mining? And I thought she could bring a pretty interesting perspective. She's based in Toronto, but I think they have offices in Mexico, Guatemala, and Chile. So we got a bit the Latin American perspective and Central American perspective there. And so, yes, it was a really interesting interview. And all the initiatives that women in mining are doing, say, to working with Newmont. And uh, yeah, the, the interview starts with her talking about her consultancy and how they are helping. And then we talk about what they're doing at Women in Mining. So a very interesting episode. And also coming up, we have a, another global mining symposium. If you just go to events.northernminer.com, this is coming up on May 25th and 26th, so about three or four weeks, so about a month away, and you can register today or you can become a sponsor at the next Global Mining Symposium. Again, that's just at events.northernminer.com. And we also have the Mining Legends Speaker Series with Carol Lassonde on June 8th. And again, those tickets are $85. It's at One King West and includes a gourmet three-course lunch, and lots of networking opportunities. Again, that is at events.northernminer.com. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have the new Canadian federal budget which is proposing $3.8 billion to support the critical minerals industry. This is by Naimul Karim. And it says here, Canada's 2022 budget has proposed to provide a total of up to $3.8 billion over eight years to develop electric vehicle components such as batteries and permanent magnets and ensure that the country becomes a vital part of the global critical minerals industry. The budget allocates up to $1.5 billion for the development of critical mineral supply chains, 
with, quote, a focus on the priority deposits, end quote. It also aims to invest $79.2 million over five years for Natural Resources Canada to provide public access to data sets that inform mineral exploration and development. Interesting. Natural Resources Canada. So $80 million to an agency to update the data. In addition, the budget proposes to introduce a new 30% tax credit for mineral exploration expenses incurred in Canada that target minerals like nickel, lithium, cobalt, graphite, copper, rare earth elements, zinc, uranium, platinum group metals, and others. So a 30% tax credit for mineral exploration expenses. That's pretty cool. Quote, we will be investing in Canada's abundant critical minerals and metals. They are a key part of going green, end quote, said Finance Minister Christia Freeland while unveiling the budget. She continues, as carmakers urgently upgrade their assembly lines to make zero emissions vehicles, we will be making sure Canadians can afford them. We will manufacture the batteries that power zero emission cars and trucks, and we will invest in charging stations from coast to coast. For our children, that means cleaner air and cleaner water tomorrow. Brendan Marshall, VP Economic and Northern Affairs at the Mining Association of Canada, described the budget as, quote, exceptionally positive, end quote, for the mining sector during an interview with the Northern Miner. And Brendan continues, the emphasis on the mining sector in this budget is unique compared to those in recent years. The level of prominence in the sector as a driver of low-carbon clean tech development is well thought out and well understood. This is a vision budget for the sector. A vision budget. I repeat, this is a vision budget for the sector, according to Brendan Marshall, VP Economic and Northern Affairs at the Mining Association of Canada. Wow. That's great news. Sounds like the message is getting out. This is great news. I mean, Canada, you know, Canada is the second biggest country in the world after Russia, and it has incredible mineral resources to state very obvious things. Continuing on here, a month before the release of the budget, MAC, Mining Association of Canada, which represents about 50 of Canada's leading mining companies, urged the government to invest more in critical minerals if it wants to avoid slipping behind its competitors. It's called on the need for, quote, heightened investment in research and development, end quote, and doubling mineral exploration tax credit for critical minerals. Marshall said the measures proposed in the budget were representative of Mac's views. He added that the proposed budget provided geoscience and exploration incentives to find more minerals and metals, especially in the case of rare earth and battery metals. So you can read the whole article on northernminer.com, but some good news for the mining sector coming from this year's federal budget. Very interesting. And speaking of critical metals and supply chains, analysts adjust higher metal price assumptions on Russia-Ukraine conflict, says by Henry Lazenby. And it says here, several analysts have adjusted higher their metal price assumptions for 2022. So they have raised their outlook as the February Russian invasion of Ukraine drags on, wreaking havoc on global metals and mineral supply chains. Moody's Investor Service released a report on April 6th flagging spiking prices for commodities Russia is a crucial producer of. These include aluminum, zinc, nickel, copper, gold, and metallurgical and thermal coal. Moody's said the price moves reflected fears of supply disruptions and scarcity 
At a time of generally low inventories, especially for base metals, Moody's noted that some base metal prices, including aluminum and nickel, approached record highs in the first quarter of 2022, while copper and zinc prices have remained elevated. And we have a quote from Moody's, our price assumptions incorporate our expectation that G20 economies will expand by 3.6% in 2022 and 3% in 2023. China's GDP will grow by 5.2% in 2022 and 5.1% in 2023, reflecting policy support with higher infrastructure spending, tax cuts, and measures targeted to specific segments. These factors support commodity prices because China is a significant commodity consumer. And they continue, risks to the outlook are high as the escalating Russia-Ukraine crisis has the potential to tip the global economy into a recession. Well, that's what I was thinking as I was reading that. I thought, these are pretty optimistic numbers. 3.6% for the G20. And they also say surging energy and steelmaking input costs and fears of potential raw material and steel product shortages caused steel prices to rise during March. After steep declines during the second half of 2021, these factors are expected to keep steel prices at elevated levels in 2022 and possibly longer. The military conflict has put Russian coal exports at risk, further disrupting supply and increasing coal prices. And finally, they say at the same time, an extended conflict would in turn directly reduce industrial activity and demand for metal and steel, constraining further growth in commodity prices. Well, I mean, this is the big fear, I think. Taking Russia offline off of the global economy, there are a whole bunch of unintended consequences that could result from that. So basically, if we just get status quo, nothing bad happening, I think we all have to be thankful for that. Turning to our next story, world's top diamond miner El Rosa hit by U.S. sanctions. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. And it says here, El Rosa, the world's top diamond producer by output, has been hit by fresh sanctions imposed by the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC. The OFAC announced late on Thursday it had placed El Rosa on the special designated nationals list, which effectively kicks a sanctioned company out of the U.S. banking system and bans its trade with Americans. So this was written on April 8th, so this was just late last week. The measure against the Russian state-owned diamond miner seeks to cut off additional sources of revenue for Moscow, according to the government agency. It also affects any entities in which Al Rosa has a 50% interest or more, either directly or indirectly. The company's customers, as well as other counterparties, must stop all dealings with the state-controlled Russian miner by May 7th. So you see, by May 7th. So a lot of these... Sanctions, again, like they have delayed impact. They give people a month to get their affairs in order because a lot of companies may just have ongoing deals with them. You know, if you're a jeweler and you're getting diamonds from El Rosa, well, you have a month to stop. And the Treasury said in a statement, quote, these actions taken with the Department of State and in coordination with our allies and partners reflect our continued effort to restrict the Kremlin's access to assets, resources, and sectors of the economy that are essential to supplying and financing Putin's brutality. So El Rosa is caught up in the sanctions. Turning over to Chile, Chile sues BHP, Albemarle, Antofagasta over water use. You know, I saw we posted this story on Twitter and some someone posted, I think it was a story, and someone was like, this is the first step towards nationalization. <laughs> I thought that's... Not a crazy thought. Not a crazy thought. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. 
The Chilean government of President Gabriel Boric is suing mines operated by giants BHP, Albemarle, and Antofagasta over alleged environmental damage caused in the northern Salar de Atacama salt flats, the world's driest place on earth. The State Defense Council's legal action singles out BHP's Escondida, the world's largest copper mine, Antofagasta and Barrick Gold's 50-50 Zaldivar operation, and Albemarle's lithium assets. The case centers on apparent deterioration of the Monteraqui Negrilar Tilapozo Aquifer, an important source of groundwater because of the high pace of extraction to support mining operations in the area. I mean, it is true, you know, we've had mining executives at the Global Mining Symposium and come on this podcast as well and who really highlight the incredible use of water that is used by mining companies. So you see it's, it's becoming an issue here. In Chile, it's definitely an Achilles heel. The government agency argues that the mines named in the suit have breached environmental protection, preservation, and conservation rules. And we have a quote from the suit by the government, quote, the extraction of various amounts of water by the sued mining companies would have caused damage that was foreseeable since they are aware of the maximum limit of descent that the aquifer could have. So you can get into the weeds there. <laughs> Go to northernminer.com. And you can find out all the details on that lawsuit. And turning to our next story, Glencore to buy recycled nickel and cobalt products from Electra in 2023. And of course, Electra battery materials used to be first cobalt. This is by Naimul Karim. Glencore has agreed to purchase nickel and cobalt products for a year from a battery recycling plant that's poised to go online in 2023. Electra Battery Materials, Battery Materials Park Project, situated to the north of Toronto. The agreement covers the 2023-2024 production of the metals, which will be produced from the refining of black mass feed generated from lithium-ion batteries. Black mass is referred to the powdery fraction that's produced after cells from used batteries are crushed. And we have a quote from Electra CEO Trent Mell who told the Northern Miner, quote, right now, they, or Glencore, are by far the absolute giants in the recycling space. When you look at battery recycling today, it's portable electronics, cell phones, laptops, etc. Glencore is the absolute dominant player there, so I think it's great to have a partner like that. Now, this is interesting. I mean, Glencore, of course, is a major player. I'm reading or listening to a book by a Bloomberg commodities expert. It's called The World for Sale, and it goes deep into commodities trading. And it's actually quite fascinating. Glencore, of course, are huge players in this. So from that perspective, it's interesting to hear, you know, it shows that Electra battery materials is is the real deal here. They're doing real things if, uh, if Glencore is coming a knocking. So that is interesting. And finally, Mexican president reignites debate around mining reform with focus on lithium. And this is by Valentina Ruiz Lieto. During a recent press conference, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador warned that if Congress does not approve a constitutional reform on electrical matters, following a decision by the Supreme Court of Justice that granted constitutional validity to the new law on electrical power, he will push for a rewrite of the country's mining law. Quote, in the event that the MPs that represented vested interests prevent the reform, in that case, they will not be able to dispose of lithium because they care a lot about lithium as they want to put their hands on this strategic mineral. If we were to be betrayed, we can still resort to reforming the mining law. It sounds like very in the weeds politics here. Again, mining getting caught in the middle. So, I mean, mining is really at the heart of so many things right now. 
with this whole, really with this war. And it kind of had been building for the last 10 years, this general underinvestment in the sector. And it really climaxed with this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And now it's just at the heart of so many major issues, energy policy, energy crisis, major economies. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on April 12th, gold is trading at $1,957.40 per ounce. That is $31 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $25.18 per ounce. That is $0.69 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $982.23 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,442.25 per ounce. That is $116 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is unchanged at $4.71 per pound. Aluminum is five cents lower at $1.54 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $1.10 per pound. And nickel is at $15.47 per pound. So that is higher after all the turmoil. And how much higher is that? That is 61 cents higher. So it is maintaining pretty elevated levels there. The high was at $21.87 when it got crazy. But it's still at $15.47, so nickel very strong. Tin breaks $20 at $20.09. That is $0.18 higher than last week. Cobalt is at $37 even, so it is $0.40 lower than last week. And look at zinc at $1.94 per pound. That is $0.06 higher than last week and almost at $2. So lest we forget, like, zinc, you know, two and a half years ago was at $0.88. And now it's at $1.94. So if we zoom out a bit, I mean, we have some big moves, I think, in nickel, just the fact that it's maintaining such an elevated level. I mean, $10 was a lot for nickel, and it's 50% higher than that at $15.47. Gold and silver look strong. So it looks like maybe something's starting to happen there. Zinc looks very strong, and so does tin. At $20. Again, two and a half years ago, this was, or close to three years ago, this was at $7.75. Now it's at 20 for 10. So it's back to this US dollar issue in a lot of ways because all of these commodities are priced in US dollars. So if your currency and the dollar is strong right now, so most currencies, not all, but many currencies are going down against the dollar. So the amount of money in your own currency, to buy dollars, you have to spend more. And then commodities are going up on top of that. So, you know, if you're in a non-commodity based country, maybe some, I don't know, some country in Africa or a Latin American country without resources or that are being exploited or maybe some Southeast Asian economy, you know, 
it's not like the problem is coming. The problem is here. It's not something that's in the pipeline. Like, I mean, these fast moves, like if things don't relax soon, we were looking at wheat earlier at the chart and it's very strong. I mean, wheat priced in US dollars is going up. So yeah, the problem is here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Anna Gabriela Juarez, and she is the president of Canadian operations of CTA Environmental Consultants, where she leads the team consulting to major resource projects, mainly in Latin America. Anna is also the founder of Women in Mining Central America, a non-for-profit organization focused on promoting and empowering women, as well as educating about mineral resources and advocating for the sector in Central America. Anna is also a non-executive board director at Royal Road Minerals. So in this interview, we start with the consulting side of the business, and then we move more to the women in mining side of things. So I hope you enjoy the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Anna Gabriela Juarez, who is president of CTA Environmental Consultants based out of Toronto, Canada. Anna, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I thought you'd bring a really interesting perspective. And so I want to ask you about that and, and ask you about what you're up to. You're involved in the mining industry uh, you're president of this environmental consultants. You work a lot with miners. Tell us what you do and what you're up to. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Adrian. Well, I'm Guatemalan. I was born in, in part of my life. I was raised in Guatemala. I live and that's why I, uh, I really identify with your podcast as well. I lived uh, many years in Germany. I was there when I was young. So it's, German is really my first language. That's the first language that I learned. And then I also returned to Germany later to do my graduate studies at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Um, so I lived in Germany for many years. I identified with the culture also quite a lot, but I also studied in, in the UK and the other part of my life, I also lived in, in Guatemala. I really got involved with the mining industry when I started working at this company, CTA Environmental Consultants, around 22 years ago when it was really founded. And in 2000, it's a Guatemalan company, in 2000, really mining was picking up in, in Central America a lot again because the commodity prices were going up. And that's where really we, we got involved in the mining industry. At that time, I was the assistant of the assistant of the engineer. I was not studying yet. I was doing my internship. So I was really learning. And that's how I got involved in the industry. And since then, it just has really increased the first in the amount of um, countries that we have worked in and the mining industry, but then also my knowledge, right? I moved in 2017, I moved to Canada to lead the company's office of in Toronto, based in Toronto. And when I arrived in Canada, I really learned a lot. And I saw really a different side of the story from the mining industry as well. I saw really the work that the organizations in Canada are doing regarding the mining industry and really supporting the mining industry as well, that I think is really important for the industry. And everything that I was seeing, I had not seen back home at all in Guatemala and in Central America, and maybe not even much in our offices in Mexico or in Santiago and Chile, as much as I really saw it in Canada. So that's when I started really um, thinking that all these organizations are so important for 
just to build on, you know, what the mining industry was doing. And it made me think of how can I do to bring this back to our country and our region. So that's when I started really the organization Women in Mining Central America. That's a non-for-profit. It's my passion project. It's the part, the job that I'm doing because I feel that there's a need in our region to really see a change and change the narrative of the mining industry. And so that's when I really founded it. And it is completely different women in mining Central America to other women organizations around the world, just because ours in Central America, the story is so different too, right? Uh, so really, really had to adapt it. We work not just on the gender piece, but we work really, really strongly in the education piece and the advocacy side as well. And then my other hat, and that's the other part of the part of my work in CTA environmental consulting is I have joined recently as a non-executive director of an exploration company with projects in Latin America. So that's my other piece of work that I've been doing lately. Okay, fascinating. So there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe I'll start with just the company itself that you're working on, and then I'll get to the women in mining part afterwards. So tell me about the company. Like, what does it do, CTA Environmental Consultants? Like, do people uh, ask for your advice for communications or for seeing if they're damaging the environment and how to measure those things? What are you doing for them? Yeah, we started with the mining industry. We really work in the different stages of the mine cycle life. So we start really from the beginning when they're exploring. They need permits, for example, and we start working then. But also when they're already operating, they need a lot of compliance. They need also, for example, money to be raised. So we are auditors, for example, for banks to ensure that the companies that they're going to be financing comply with the highest standards regarding environment and social. So we do a lot of auditing as well work. Um, for the mining industry directly, but also for the financial institutions. And then really up to closure, really, when they really still have to monitor that the environment remains as planned, right? That everything remains um, and is um, yeah, protected. So we really work all um, through the cycle of life of the mining industry. We have a diverse team. We're, as mentioned, we're Guatemalan, but we have offices in Mexico, in Santiago, in Chile, and the one in Toronto. But we have worked in in Europe, you have worked in Asia, we have worked in in Africa, but our really our core and our strength really lies in Latin America. That's where we add value to our clients. Yeah, perfect. And so as I hear you speak, I wonder to myself, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, I imagine a typical client might be a smaller miner that does, because I would think the bigger miners, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I would think that they would have that uh, internal people that would be taking care of that whole process and that maybe that you're helping out the two-person company that basically doesn't have an ESG person, for example. I don't know. What do you say? I think it's both. We work really with both. I think our biggest clients are the big mine companies because they have so many requirements mm -hmm. as well. Sometimes even if they have large teams, they still require lots of support from outside. Plus, mm -hmm. uh, on the compliance side, and, and that is one important part, you cannot be doing the work and saying that you're doing it well too, right? So they need mm -hmm. someone to come externally and say, yes, what they're doing is the right thing. And or, for example, in the environmental monitoring part, for example, they're taking samples, but a third party comes and takes samples too and ensures that the results they're getting is the same ones this company is getting, right? 
So it's really just, I think it's a mix of both. We really have big clients, like for mining companies that are big. And then we also have junior mining companies that, like you say, is like two people. And we support in a lot of other stuff as well. Okay, I take your point. Exactly. Like you shouldn't be auditing yourself. So that's where you come in with even the super huge companies and help them get the results or get the uh, information they need to verify and audit the environmental ESG requirements and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Good. Okay. And so you have operations or offices in Toronto and you were saying Guatemala and Mexico, is that right? Yeah. And Santiago and Chile. And in Chile. So how is it? Is there one area that's say more, I don't know, busier areas than others that are more exciting? Are you seeing movement, say a lot of things happening in Mexico and maybe it's quieter in Canada for who knows what reason. What's your sense of the kind of the business landscape from your perch where you are? I think it's cyclical. I think, um, for example, in Chile, you have, it's a really uh, copper industry. So it really depends on how the copper industry is doing. If the prices are good, I think you see quite the movement, right? And the need of the mining companies and they can invest or they feel free to invest. Mm-hmm. When the prices are not that good, then I think it gets a bit quieter. Um, so I think it really depends on the region. Mexico, I think you have a bit of mining companies ranging from gold to copper to a bit of, you know, everything in between. So you, you don't maybe see that that movement as much as you see, for example, in Chile, that's really just mainly copper. Um, Central America, I think it's the same thing. I think there there is a mix as well where the political side plays a role as well. You know, there's some... Stuff doesn't happen when when there's elections coming on. So you see that companies tend to slow down at that time a bit. But in the environmental side, they always have to comply. It doesn't matter what circumstances are. It doesn't matter where the prices are. Um, environmental social side, you always have to work on. Many companies don't stop that part. Even right now during the pandemic, everything shut down, but you still had to comply and be sure that the environmental and social part was done. So I think in that piece, you don't see that cyclical part as much. Right. And is there any area specifically that's kind of really hot right now or some like are are there, you know, where business is coming much more than in certain other areas or is it just pretty well spread evenly? I think it's spread evenly, but I definitely feel Mm -hmm. like you can see if you compare it, Mexico, for example, is so big. And then really has a long history in mining. So you can really see that there's a lot of movement there always. Central America, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, it's a lot of countries, it's time smaller. Um, There's not as much mining and even historic mining as there is in Mexico, if you compare it to Mexico or even to Chile. So you can see that there is a difference, right? Okay, excellent. Now, as far as the Women in Mining organization, you're the founder of Women in Mining Central America. You said you started it about a year ago. So tell us about that and why you started it and what you hope to do. Yeah, sure. So it really started, as mentioned before, it's really my passion project. I really saw in Central America and being from Guatemala myself, I really saw that there is this narrative in Central America and this really almost rejection sometimes from people against the mining industry. And I couldn't put my finger on it till I was in Canada. 
Um, in Canada, I really saw um, first a big education piece. And um, there's several organizations that really work on educating people about the importance of, of the mining industry. I saw how much, for example, even Northern Miner, right, plays a role in informing and advocating for the sector. I saw ex um, organizations as women in mining in Canada, but other organizations of women as well that have worked just in these different subjects of representation of women and, you know, having more women on board and including them in the sector. And I thought, you know, this is stuff that we need to do in Guatemala and in Central America too, because if we work on the sites, we might change the narrative that we have in our country. So women in mining really started. And the first thing that we did uh, was work on the education piece. And in the education piece, we have a program called Club Mineralogico Centroamericano, so the Mineralogist Club, and it's target for kids. So we first started with kids. So we have right now around 180 kids that are getting educated about minerals, about mining, about the importance of the mining industry to our daily lives. They're learning about the different careers that you can follow in the mining industry as well. And it's really important because I feel that People, maybe when they're a bit older, they're already biased. Kids aren't. So if we really start educated from when they're young, we really can change the perspective of the kids. Plus, kids are really great advocates for us, too. They tell it to their cousins. They tell it at school. They tell it to their parents, their grandparents. So I think our information gets spread so greatly with kids. So this group has been growing. We have kids from six countries joining us in the event. It's held in Spanish. And everyone that works in the organization are volunteers right now. And mining companies have been great supporting us, really telling their story to kids, which has been also quite a challenge because they're not used to sometimes talking with kids about, you know, mineral processing and, you know, geology. But it has been really great. And they have been really supporting the, the organization and this education effort. The other group we have in education is we started educating teachers and we started educating a museum guides. So we thought, you know, the other big group, how we can spread more the word of the importance of mining, but really just telling the right story too. So we have right now 400 um, teachers and guides from museums, from kids, kids museums, that are getting training exactly like the kids are in the same areas, always mineralogy, processing, and the importance of, of mining in our daily life. So I think we're growing and we have several plans of how this initiative and this education program has to grow. So that is one of the key pieces that we have. And it really attaches to our second main pillar of work, that is the advocacy side. We see in Central America, I don't know if you see a lot of this news in, in, in Germany, but we have a, a lot of anti-mining NGOs. And then if you're, for example, from the finance industry and you want to understand a project, the only thing you hear is the mining company telling their story. And then there's tons of anti-mining NGOs telling their side of the story. So you have tons of anti-mining NGOs really, you know, unbalancing the story. So we want to counter, you know, put a counterweight and tell the, the good things of the mining industry, the great things that they're doing. Because they're great stories, too, I think everyone hears about the bad things that have happened in Central America and all the conflicts that happen, but no one tells about the good things that they're doing, too, just maybe the mining company itself. So we really want to be a voice for that, and we really want to show of the great work that they're doing. So we started several initiatives. One of them is called Inspire. 
So we have invited mining companies to really tell their story, their great areas of success and inspire. Maybe not just other people hearing about it, maybe not just media, but also inspiring other mining companies because I think great ideas are to be shared and it's great also that mining companies learn from other mining companies' experiences in the same region. So it's been a great um, great platform for mining companies to share. Our last event was um, right now end of March. We had Newmont um, telling their story about they bought a project of Gold Corp that was based in Guatemala called Marlin Mine and um, they are already closing it and they told their story how everything is being left, you know, how everything is now green and how it was almost before, right? So it's really great to see see that we had a great also participation from the Minister of Energy and Mines of Guatemala saying exactly this is what we want. This is the type of investment we want. This is the type of compromise we want from the mining companies as well. So I think just having these discussions, I think has been really, hopefully really helpful for the industry too. And this is the type of work we want to do. And then the third piece, of course, is the gender piece, right? Um, where we want to see more representation of women in the mining industry. Well, I just think this is so well timed because I think we're in a climate where mining companies will, I would think, would jump at the chance to go to a women in mining event and explain what they're doing. You know, it's not like the 1980s where they would just say, oh, this is insignificant. Why am I doing this? So I think it's awesome. And I think this focus on education is actually really smart. I mean, I was thinking to myself as you were describing the kids, I was, you know, when I was in grade six, we got the environmental lecture. And I remember the earth is going to, you know, is going down and, and, uh, you know, we're going to hit an environmental catastrophe. And yeah, that was my introduction to, you know, environmentalism and all that stuff. And so, you know, we, sometimes we forget about the kids in a sense, but it's really important to have that balanced view. And, and to provide that to them, because as you rightly point out, you know, you can shape how they think at that very young age. So at least give them balance so they can think critically because they actually can think critically oftentimes. So very fascinating. So my question then, uh, going to the women's side of things, how far have we come? How are we doing uh, from your perspective? So it's interesting because one of our first things that we still have to do in women and mining in Central America is really getting statistics. I think in Central America, we don't have statistics at all, but there is a general fact. And being a woman myself, I do go to sites and I do see that there's an underrepresentation of women in the mining workforce. If you look at it globally, there's some reports that indicate that there's around 8 to 17 percent women globally. Um, I know, for example, one of our companies that is in, in Central America and in Caribbean region uh, specifically, for example, Barrick, uh, Pueblo Viejo Mine, they have around mm -hmm. 18% and they have managed to bring up the needle, like move the needle quite a lot. I think they started up with 10 or 8% and then they brought it up to around 18%. But for example, if you compare that to other sectors, they talk about 37% representation of women. So we're really quite under everyone else in the in the industry. And then if you think in the corporate pipeline, that is general. But in the corporate pipeline, when you think about women in the C-suite, so it's the managers and all that, and that even drops even lower. So they talk, for example, in the mining industry, they say that it's around 13% of women in that part in, in the C-suite. And then if you go even above that, in the women on boards, 
that drops even lower. They talk about, well, there's some, there's some reports that say it's 19%, but compared to other uh, industries, they talk about 26% of, of women. And I think that has moved also quite a lot in the last years because there's so much really interest and really companies are really pushing, but also the finance industry, the investors, everyone is really starting to push towards more inclusive mining workforce. So that has been moving, I think, in this last year. I think these numbers are from 2021. So it's, it's re- interesting. And then if you really think about the diversity part, not just women, but also representation of Latinos, for example, or just, you know, the gender piece or ethnicity piece or the race piece, I think that is even even more critical. I think in the C-suites or in, in the boards, they talk about really representation of Latinas, if you talk about women, of around 1%. So it's really, really, really low, the amount of women that are of a set, certain ethnic group that are represented. So yeah, that the, that is a really interesting interesting part as well to to see and to change. Yeah, I mean, it tells me that there's a ton of opportunity out there for young women or just women in general to come into the industry. Like, I wonder if maybe like, are there not enough women for the company? It's probably both. I and you'd correct me if I'm wrong here. I assume because. They're having a hard time getting anybody to study mining to begin with. And so I, I, I wonder what the numbers are, for instance, of the gender numbers, let's say, for people studying mining. I assume it's probably more men than women, right? And so there's probably a double problem of maybe old cultural stereotypes where people don't hire women and then a lower pool from education. I don't know. Have you thought about that? And what do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. No, you're completely right. And more in Latin America, where we have really a machista culture, right? They think, yeah, men are supposed to be the ones working and women are supposed to be home. So I think there's that part. But then also, I think you're right that the fact that there's certain careers that women tend to choose. And I think that's why the education platform that we put, I think is really interesting as well, because it brings girls to understand all the STEM, like science, like all the technical stuff, mathematics, uh, engineering, and they really learn from this. So our education purpose, our education work is not just for the advocacy side, uh, but it really is also a a tool for entering more, more girls into this type of industry and really making them learn about it. And they have seen in our case, a lot of our speakers are women. So they see also, you know, this women that are doing this type of work. So I think they can, you know, um, I don't know how to say it, but maybe see themselves in them, right, as women. So I think that is also an important piece, but you're right, it's both things. Interesting. Okay, so again, I just see, uh, sounds like as the, industry opens up it's i just see opportunity really for women who are coming in and minorities because there's not enough right and these guys increasingly have to fill their quotas right uh they don't want to all whiteboard you know Uh, so okay so where is where's the most work needed then in in your view Uh, where do we need to fix things the most I think it's a mix of things that you start need to do. I think you start you need to start leading more women into the pipeline. I think you need to work on that piece. And I think that really starts from education from kids, but also uh, women that are going to go to university to start 
helping them to join STEM careers. Um, mm. And then at the same time, really mining companies have to establish themselves targets and objectives. Uh, we have seen this really clearly in this last years. If you think about Newmont and the sustainability-linked bonds that they recently established uh, regarding and women in leadership roles, for example, and they put targets of 50% women in seniorship, uh, senior leadership roles by 2030. So hmm. that gives you a specific that you really need to really set targets and measure them to see that you're really moving the needle. And then it has to do with um, bridging to fill the gap um, by, for example, CEO and management commitments. You have to ensure transparency and like I mentioned, setting targets and measuring progress. And there has to be leadership development for women to ensure robust pipeline of talent. Uh, but even little things like infrastructure for women, sometimes because there was such a male-dominated industry, you have to have bathrooms or certain health and safety equipment that are specifically for women, that all this has still changed, right? And it's still changing in this last years. So I think it's adapting it for making it also friendly for women to be able to even work there. So I think it has to be a mix of different initiatives that you have to work on to be able to really change and move the needle. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And again, it's it's almost back to this education issue and why you guys are so perfectly positioned. Okay, so as we wrap up here, what's on the menu for you as you go forward, say with women in mining and just in general, but uh, what do you guys have coming up? Are there any events or anything? Yes, we have a lineup of already um, events that we're doing uh, at the end of the month. Well, this, uh, this month of April, we're turning one year old. So we're celebrating in one of the countries. So uh, Women Central America works from Guatemala to Panama and the Caribbean region. So we're going to have an event in Nicaragua where we're going to, it's called a cocktail minero, a mining cocktail. And it's really just trying to bring women, um, but also men. We, if we're talking about inclusion, we need to bring both on board and really have a discussion about the importance of gender equity. And we are going to be also in that during that day, really honoring some of the women that have been opening and have been opening the path for many other women in our in our one of initiatives called Mujer de Oro, Women of Gold. So we're honoring them that night as well. But we have other events lined up. We have every six weeks or two, eight weeks, we have our kids club. We have our training for trainers. That is the, the teachers that we're training as well. So we have a lot of different activities. I think right now we are so new that we're still a lot of has been really working on getting people to know about us and the work that we're doing and seeing that really Central America is such an important area for doing mining, even though there is so much controversy sometimes regarding the political side. There's such a great geological potential. If you really just think about the world-class deposits that we have of Barrick, for example, in Dominican, but also the Escobar mine of Pan American silver in Guatemala or the Cobre Panama of First Quantum in, in, in Panama, do you really see the potential that there is there? And we really just need to get closer to these actors, trying to see how we can support their organizations and be a voice for them as well or support for them and locally um, or globally or whatever they really need. So yeah, that's kind of right now the, the type of work we're doing. 
Okay, well, hopefully we can help you get the message out. And again, it all sounds very exciting. Again, I, I feel like uh, this is an idea and a thing that just it's it's hitting the right time and place. You know, timing is everything. And I just think you guys are really well positioned to just grow and help the industry. So it's all, again, very exciting. So if people want to learn more about, say, uh, the women in mining, as well as your uh, company, w where would they go online? Our company's website is www.cta-consultoria.com and um, the women in mining webpage is www.wimcentralamerica.com. And we're really active in both companies as well in our platforms on LinkedIn and YouTube and in Instagram, Facebook, of course. And yeah, so I think that's where they can definitely see and learn more about us. Okay, excellent. Anna Gabriela Juarez, President, CTA Environmental Consultants. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. There you have it. Thank you once again to Anna Gabriela Juarez, President CTA Environmental Consultants and founder of Women in Mining Central America for joining us on this week's podcast. Sounds like they're doing some good. And with that, if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.